Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. So I have to admit, right? I actually spend a lot of time preparing for these interviews. I do a pre-call and then I like do a crap ton of writing and I, I think, okay, this question leads on to the next question and they're going to say this and it's going to go run smoothly and I'm just going to kill it. And um, so I did the pre-call with our next guest and it went like so well and I actually enjoyed, I don't enjoy all pre-calls, but I really did enjoy this one. And I thought, yeah, like I kind of taken it for granted because I've done absolutely no preparation at all right for this podcast um so it is going to be a bit of a like philip's little like niche team little meeting because we've got jacqueline who we all know has now joined philips in new york me who you guys will know i'm at philips but we've also now got gertrude wong right auctioneer hong kong office from philips so welcome to the show, Gertrude. Thank you very much for the introduction, Daniel. Uh, I really enjoyed our pre-chat as well. I was just like chatting with a friend. Um, it's my pleasure. Uh, I've actually, when I started, before I started my career with watches, I was actually listening to your podcast. I remember the before I started, I sort of wanted to know things about the industry. So I listened to this podcast as well. So it's my it's my great pleasure to be on this podcast now, I guess three years later, working in watches to be with you guys. Well, you see, one of the things yeah about you that people probably don't know about you, but internally we know, is that your rise within the company has been like incredibly fast. Like when I first joined, you know, people were talking about you and how fast your progression has been. And uh, and actually, they were using you as an example of how Thomas gives chances to people, right? And he doesn't necessarily judge you straight, you know, prejudge you, and he gives everybody a fair chance at, at, at doing it, right? And that if you do take your opportunities, then you could do as well as Gertrude Wong, right? <laughs> like, and, uh, you know, within my first year, You've taken that to a next step because you're now like auctioneer as well. But let's 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 rewind a little bit, right? You didn't start in watches, right? What were you doing in uh, Hong Kong? Actually, because you're not actually even from Hong Kong. Well, you kind of are from Hong Kong, but yeah, just explain your background and then what you were doing before. Right. So um, I consider myself a Canadian. Um, I was born in Hong Kong, and I moved to Canada when I was 10, studied there, graduated there. And my major was at first fine arts. I find out I didn't like it for the, after the first year. Then I swapped to graphic design. And that is what I sort of graduated with. And what my first passion was. Um, when I graduated, I thought Canada was a bit laid back for my style. Um, I'm pretty much, I, would, I can consider myself a workaholic. 
So I decided, hey, why not go back to Hong Kong to try a bit? I like the pace.、Um, my family, well, some of my relatives is there.、Um, so I just decided to move back to Hong Kong myself and start a career in graphic design.、Uh, I was in the industry for about almost ten years. I had my own studio, worked in numerous studios.、Uh, my even advertising industry, I worked for advertising for three years.、Um, And should I explain how I got to Philips? Yes. <laughs> so as I was saying, I was a designer, and、um, by during that time, I was taking freelances. And so happens, Philips Hong Kong was looking for a freelancer to do their、um, catalogs, not just watches. It was、uh, catalogs for the TCA department, the arts department,、um, and jewelry. They needed a person to know the Chinese language and is good at design to, you know, join the creative team from abroad in Hong Kong to do the layouts for all the catalogs. So that's how you know I put my foot in Philips.、Um, I think I worked there for like two to three years as a freelancer for each season for maybe a month. I started to.、Um, Look at the watches catalog, and、uh, page by page, I realized that oh my god, there's so much more than just Rolex. And from there on, I, I start to sort of started my rabbit hole of searching for watches online, what I like.、Um, and one day, I decided, hey, you know, I think I found my second passion. Maybe I should try to reach out to Thomas and see if you know I can give it a shot. And that's where it all started. Right, I think that's a great place to stop there, just for a minute, because well, for a few reasons, you started off like, well, you made the decision to go to Thomas and ask him, like, how, you know, would you be suitable for this job, or you know, do you have the skills for it? But you'd already done like design for that long. You're clearly passionate about design because, as Jacqueline tells us, you know, well. Jacqueline just said before we went on air, you still do the Christmas cards for everybody in Philips, and you do like a Cartier, you know, design one because you're so into Cartier. So you clearly love that as well. So was that not enough? Was it not enough? That's a big question. It was enough at that stage, but at some point, I guess I was trying to project. You know, when I get older, what what do I want to be or What do I want to do? Do I want to like say I'm like fifty? Do I want to sit in front of a computer and just do design, or do I want to challenge myself,、um, talk to people,、uh, you know, hold a watch in my hand and just talk about watches? I felt the latter was more fun, so I decided, hey, you know, just give it a shot. If if it doesn't doesn't work out, I can always go back to design. Okay, and how long did you? Because you actually had your own company, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's like that's a big big decision. To how long did you take to mull over that decision? I guess it was over around one season. I don't know. I somehow just got this idea that, oh, maybe you know, when I go back home after work, when I was in design, I was like going on forums looking at watches. Like almost every day, just reading all these because I like vintages and you know vintage. You you really have to look through forums to learn about it. And I thought, 
why am I spending so much time doing these, you know, forum searches and reading all these men talking about watches? And I thought, maybe I really do like this thing. Uh, maybe I can really try, give it a try. I mean, it never hurts to give it a try, but it is a big decision for me to give up what, where I was and what I was doing. So it took me, you know, a long time to, to think about if I should take this leap or not. And it's also like the salary cut you're going to take, yeah? Because oh, huge cut. <laughs> you probably thought like, like exactly laughing, peanuts, right? <laughs> Because, like, you taking a... Should we be saying this on air? <laughs> no, if you're running your own business and you have to start from the bottom of any industry, right, it's going to be a massive haircut, Yeah. right? So totally. I, I absolutely applaud you for, um, yeah, like, just <laughs> throwing caution to the wind and deciding to become, which was your first position, right? Cataloger. That's right, right? Your yeah, the, the lowest of the you know, the hierarchy, the cataloger. <laughs> because that's where Jacqueline is right now. Right. Okay, go. Um, wh Where are you from, from Canada? Toronto. Ah, okay. Nice. I, I grew up in Vancouver. That's why when you said Canada, I was like, ooh, nice. <laughs> um, I was wondering... In terms of, like, the roles reversed, as what Daniel said. You were a graphic designer running your own company, researching about watches, and now you're working in watches, but you're still clearly very passionate about graphic design. Um, do you think, so, so, like, now, after work, are you still doodling on your Procreate or, um No. Most of not, your most of your time is taken up by watches. I mean, why I do the little cards, um, the reason behind it is when I first started, I thought, like by the end of the year, I love Christmas. Christmas is my favorite holiday. Um, I thought everyone was really nice to me. Like to a surprise, like auction industry, what I heard is could be very like mean. <laughs> but yeah, everyone I met was super nice to me. You know, they taught me a lot. And the card is really like, with my peanut salary, I want to do something that gives back. And that's why I started this thing of making my own Christmas card and handwriting them to everyone. And that that's how this sort of thing started. Mm. And I was just wondering for you, what was, when when you first started as a, as a cataloger, what exactly did Thomas say to you? Um, because I, I heard kind of internally that there was sort of like an interview uh and i was wondering like what was the most memorable part of that first initial chat like my interview yeah oh my god it was horrible it was <laughs> it was the worst day of my life i felt like i was the most stupid person in the whole world um, so it was thomas called me to the office you know come by uh, over the weekend so it's quiet and, and we can chat about it so I went to the office empty office just me and him and he told me to wait in the board uh, boardroom big boardroom just me and then he walks in with a tray of watches and then he puts it down and then he said to me okay now I'm the client now sell me these watches I was like oh my god 
I don't even know what I'm looking at. I literally knew nothing about the watches. And then So what did you do? <laughs> I was like, oh, welcome, sir. <laughs> you know, welcome to this. <laughs> like a role play thing, right? It was so yeah. embarrassing. And then he started, you know, going through, okay, what about this watch? Tell me about this watch. And I was like, uh, it's a, I remember there was like a offshore. I was like, uh, it's a, I know a little bit because I tried to study the catalog a bit before, but it was nothing from the catalog, right? So I was like, okay, <laughs> it was what brand? Um, it's like a chronograph. And then he asked me, okay, what metal is it? It's like, um, I don't know. Because <laughs> I back then I didn't know how to tell white gold from platinum, from steel. So he was teaching me like every step. I remember there was like around six watches and basically each watch he has to teach me what to say. And it, mm. I guess when I reached the sixth watch, I still don't know what it is. So I was like sweating, like my face was red. And then I felt that I failed the interview. I think he, he thought mm -hmm. so too. He's like, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? Like this designer wanting to be a cataloger. Mm. It was quite brutal, this first interview. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You said first interview. So yes. were there subsequent interviews? I had like five interviews. I guess because <laughs> I have been the designer for the Watchers team for quite a while, a few seasons. And, you know, we get along. Um, they know how I work and, and I like them as a team. So they were really trying to almost like persuade me not to go into the industry. They were like, are you sure you want to give that up? I was like, yeah. And then another interview over drinks or dinner, just Thomas keep, you know, sort of, sort of testing me if I would really want to do this. And I was also the helper during the preview for one day because I had my own job as well. So I went over the weekend to volunteer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're not painting the best image here. It's like people people in industry saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Maybe think about it again. And here we are. <laughs> We're here. Well, I have to say, yeah, that when I spoke to Thomas about coming to Philips, one of the things that I think he put as a priority was, I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. So he didn't hide anything. He didn't like, he's trying to give you as much exposure into what you potentially will be doing as much as possible. And uh, a lot of it was negative, actually, because you know, he was telling, trying to warn you of things that can potentially happen in the job that you won't like, all right, that you potentially may not like. And uh, I was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Because I, I came on a very different route to Gertrude because I, as you said in the prequel, was already quite familiar with Philips and also the, the collector community. I was used to engaging like collectors and stuff and and how they speak. So it was such a different experience, uh, like compared mm -hmm. to you, Gertrude, where uh, I didn't even have like the tray of watches. Jack, did you have a tray of watches? Mm. You mean from from Paul? Yeah. No, it was. Um, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you what my interview was like. We sat down for lunch um, at 
uh, the St. Regis Hotel, which is like right by the office. And we were chatting, everything was going well. And at one point I, I asked him, yeah, like how, what do you think the, the job will um, entail? And, and, and he said, oh, exactly what we've been talking. And here he takes off his watch, hands it to me. If I were the client, how would you, how would you, um, you know, teach me and, and introduce this watch to me? He didn't say sell, but he was basically saying, how would you explain this watch to me? And he gave me a Zenith Daytona. And as Daniel knows, I know very little about Rolex in general. So I was like, uh, well, it's, but I knew it was a Zenith Daytona. Uh, so, so I said, ah, uh, this was before Rolex made their own in-house movement. Uh, base caliber was from Zenith. They call it Zenith Daytona. Are the subdials kind of brown? If so, might be Patrizzi or uh, Tobacco, whatever. And then I, there were a few details that I missed. Um, like for example, the, the four line, um, text and the difference in the in the bezel that I was completely clueless to um so he he was he showed me and then he asked me what I was wearing and how I would sell that to uh or or explain that to a client well that then became very easy so then I explained to him my own watch and the story and then that was it and he basically well watch was that uh, was it that? was uh, it was my Kari, my um, the retrograde. So, okay. and then afterwards, it was it was it was done, and he said, "Well, you're clearly going to be doing a lot of cataloging because that's what I told him I wanted to do, and and research." Um, and he said, "And then we all work together uh, on everything." So, um. He calls it the baptism by fire, basically throwing into the fire pit and being being um, open to helping everyone and doing everything. And that's the way uh, we do things at Phillips. So clearly when I joined um, mid-October, it was almost the Geneva sale. Hong Kong was done, you know, in preparation. And then uh, New York was still very much going at it, but cataloging and, and organizing. So I had uh, eagerly awaited and watched from the sidelines for Geneva and, and obviously Hong Kong um, while working towards New York. But um, yeah, I don't want to take too much time. This is Gertrude's time, but that was basically the, well, the I think you, I think you lemonade that interview. Like what the hell? Like you're saying like you missed the four liner and the bezel or something? Like, dude, like could you have aced that interview anymore? And you turn up rocking a unique Kari. I mean, no, dude, I was, like, I was, I was, you know, I my face was so red because when I saw the Daytona, like if he had given me a Cartier or a vintage paddock, right? But. Daytona's I'm the worst actually Daytona I'm, I'm okay if he gave me like a sub or a GMT then absolutely I could not have told you like the different variations that was 1675 50 55 12 um with a question mark but Daytona's I, at least I knew 
that this wasn't whatever. But the the, the four liners and the bezel, I completely missed that. I mean, I didn't even. I was like, um, and he's before, like, well, before uh, before Gertrude comes in, right? You should have said to him, yeah, yeah, I know that piece because I used to own a six two three nine. Yeah, Daniel, wow. you have it the easiest. You don't have that yeah. test. Yeah, he did. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I didn't have the test. Yeah, I'm just. You see, I'm just naturally charming. Mm. <laughs> but Gertrude, what were you gonna say about about like uh, Jacqueline's uh, interview? No, well, Jacqueline is like a collector going into the job. I do absolutely reading nothing. So I thought, um, I think I shocked Thomas a bit. Like he was like, a bit scared <laughs> of my interview. I think if you ask him now, he'll be like, "Oh my god, that interview was brutal." No, I did. <laughs> I did ask him. <laughs> he was thinking, he was like having like double question marks, you know, thinking whether it was really like right for you. But you know what? Like having worked with you for a couple of years, I'm so happy you're on the team. Like it, you, you're like, um, well, you are a star player on the team, right? And when you have a star player on your team, it's like you just feel very reassured and secure. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. Yeah. But uh, in terms of your experiences, both of you are now catalogers. I just wonder what is the difference in both of your experiences? Gertrude, you coming along, not really, just really dipping your toes into it, as opposed to Jacqueline, which, whereby, you know, Jack, you've got a pretty insane collection yourself. So what did you both, what did both, what did you both get out of it? Or what are you both getting out of it? You mean oh, from doing I'll, I'll, I'll be short and then I can let Gertrude take you know more time so when i um first started because i joined the team late in mid-october um most of the cataloging was already done so while i was learning about how to catalog i just kind of um went with the watches that i was already familiar with that still needed to be cataloged um and so i had most of those and then i took a few from you know rolexes in general that i weren't uh not familiar with and it was really about a lot of uh, i mean for me at least a lot of time online reading and uh going through the library for some of the uh, uh rolex references because you know the at the office there are so many books on rolexes um and then the rest was making it an enjoyable read for for the audience um and and but of course the most of the time was spent researching yeah and and what i learned was just how ignorant i i was um to knowledge and, and scholarship in, in general because even for the watches that i had owned myself i thought would be a lot easier to write about but um when you actually sit down and you put yourself in the shoes of the um, the the client or the the audience it becomes more difficult to make it in an enjoyable while educating read so it was um it was time consuming and and um um a lot of work but I'm looking forward to this next round at the same time. Yeah. Okay. You got truth. What do I get out of being a cataloger, right? Um, I guess for yeah. me, because I, I knew nothing, 
so you know the chance to look at every watch you know very closely and researching about it definitely sort of I grew a lot from from cataloging I still love cataloging um, of course when I started I was pretty slow I was never an academic person I'm a designer so I don't really need to write things you know hmm. so writing yeah. was not my forte first of all um, research as well so I was really you know learning on the job um, and I actually like cataloging because you don't get to pick and choose, you know, whatever, like we have this box of watches, right? And you sort of just draw one out and you write that one. And and that's how, you know, you learn because you don't pick what you like. Because of course, when you like it, you sort of spend more time on it. Like for example, for me, Rolex is like mm. not my thing as well. So when I pick a Rolex, I'm like, damn. And then I really have to research <laughs> and look at it, right? <laughs> but that's how you learn. Like you don't, you shouldn't avoid things. Um, uh, you know, you don't like it fine, but you try to make it more interesting. The thing, exactly. you know, find the things that you like about this watch and talk about it. And that's, you know, the, the thing that I like about cataloging. Because when you face a client, you know what you wrote, first of all, you know the catalog, you know, from, from the first lot to the last lot. And it really helps when you talk to collectors on the, on the ground. Oh yeah. yeah, dude. Like once the catalog comes out, I am going through every single lot because it's like when you're on the floor with uh, the clients, honestly, don't you find this? They seem to ask you the question, exact question. You don't know. <laughs> like Every time I found out, I was like, why can't you ask me an easy question? Like, you know, what's the diameter or what's the material or, you know, what is it? Or, you know, you just think, there's, there's tons of questions you could have asked me. You asked me the question I don't know that, that I have to go and look at the catalog. And so I learned very quickly, read the catalog. And I, I actually make notes, like my own notes. Yeah. That just key points on every lot. I mean, did, did you, do you guys find that? Yeah. But then I, I think that it's okay to not know things because I mean, nobody knows everything. Right. So for me, when, you know, people ask me things that I don't know, I actually ask them, oh, what what do you think you know you can teach me because most of them like nerd about things that you don't know mm. about right so learning from them is actually you know much better than you know doing research online and, and in the books because they have already spent years learning about it so i like talking to collectors because you can learn from them as well mm. that's that's very interesting you said that because i um i also felt the same way a lot of times people pose it as a question but really they already know and they kind of just want it to pose it as a question to have a discussion about it um in, instead of coming off like oh did you know that this is also the abc um so i just just go along and 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 li listen to what they have to say um but during my preview i had like maybe two people that were like that and the rest were um i mean i this is what i kind of off topic but um my biggest takeaway from the preview in general was i feel like i wasn't on the floor as much um because when i was attending the previews i just thought that it had they you guys had a preview room with all the desks set up and the showroom what i didn't know 
was that there's also a back office, right? Where all, everyone is sitting and with their laptops. So, and I found out this time and the entire time, I just didn't know when to go out and when to come back. When there were nobody there, I just would go back to the back office. Um, but I felt like, you know, during my talk with Paul afterwards, I told him, oh, I wish I would have just stayed on the floor more, even if there were nobody there, um, because there were, you know, people coming in kind of sporadically. And maybe I missed some, like, good convos over over those. Um, I don't know how you guys do it. Do you guys just stay on the floor at all time or when you're not with a client? Well, I'm just thinking as you're saying that answer, right? It's because you, you haven't been put on client duties yet. So it isn't a decision on like if you're on the floor or not on the floor. It's like mm. you just actually don't have any time at all. And you're on the computer because you have to be on the computer most of the time because mm. you have to reply like a client's query or you have to check out like some of the client's personal information so that you're mm. making sure that everything's correct, be sending sending off their like bidding forms, or um, yeah. So sometimes you sometimes like do as much as sometimes on the phone as much as you can, and then sometimes yeah. you realize it's going to be far more efficient if I just get off the floor and just multitask on the computer, right? Because you have like mm. you have WhatsApp, you've got like WeChat, you've got emails, you've got your forms there. Filling out forms is mm -hmm. ten times easier like on a computer. And then yeah. when you don't have that, then I generally make my way on the floor because I, I do actually love engaging with the collectors and having those discussions uh, that that you just mentioned, Jack. So at the beginning, once I kind of figured stuff out, I still I wasn't given like client duties like really early on. But so there was a time where I was free. I was literally like what you just said on the floor because I think I was most useful to the team on the floor right because they're busy doing their stuff and uh i was also at the same time trying to pick up clients and the preview is one of the best ways to pick clients up um but yeah what do you think gertrude i actually try to be on the floor as much as i can of course mm -hmm. you know sometimes i even bring my laptop and sit just sit beside the showcases because it's just easier because you know clients make appointments but they never they're never on time anyways so, I mean, just be there and just, you know, when someone has a question, or also to engage with people that doesn't, or people who are intimidated by auction. Mm. Then you, mm. you, you know, go up to them, oh, can I help you? Do you want to see this watch? And they often will be like, ah, no, no, no. And then they'll look another watch and then they'll be like, oh, what about this one? You want to see it? Try it, please. And then they will start, you know, to take watches out of the showcase. Mm. And that's why I like, you know, that's why I like staying in the preview because mm. there's a lot of people that are just maybe walk-ins and they're not sure what auction is about and they thought that everything should stay in the showcase yeah mm. Mm. Well, have you noticed g like everybody's got their own style as well on how they interact with the clients it's, it's quite different isn't it because it's not like we received like really specialist training on it and if you watch and just observe it's, it's really interesting because it, it's all effective as well. Well, I think that's why, you know, we have such a big team of specialists and you can just pick who you want to talk to. Not always, but you can pick someone else sometimes. 
you feel like a bad day, you talk to someone more cheerful. If you want efficiency, you find somebody else. You know, it's a choice. <laughs> right.、Mm. Um, right. So we're going to move on for off the cataloger and off the floor now. So, where did your progression in the your career at watches? Yeah, how did it go after that? Ah,、uh, so I started as the cataloger. Um, was I've been in the company for three years, a little bit more than three years. Oh my I god! I think really? I I got a chance to become a specialist while I was assigned co-head of sale with Ziyong. That was my next sort of role.、Uh, I think I spent like a year and a half, almost two years. Until Thomas said, "Look, I think because I've been designing the catalog, so I know the catalog, you know, front and back, what to put, what to look out for, the the, the focus、mm-hmm. basically." And then he just said, "I think you can handle, you know, being a co-head of sale with with Yong. Obviously, my knowledge is not as advanced, so I mean, the co-head title makes a lot of sense where Yong was with me to sort of curate Hong Kong. That was my next." Role. What 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 does what does that role entail though? So I don't even know. <laughs> like, well, basically, basically, you manage the whole sale. You create the sale. You know, from consignments to selling to post sale, everything. Oh, okay, that's a massive job then. Yeah, I I guess so. Because I Thomas, you know, we we had a conversation why he thought that I was. Suitable for the next sort of stage, I guess, because I was also designing the catalog during you know my job as a cataloger. I was doing both, so I catalog, do the essays, and then I actually put in the page. And I think there's an art to how you lot a sale and how you sort of curate the whole sale. And I was with Thomas doing the whole thing from step one, so I kind of get the tricks, I guess, of how to do it. And you know, slowly, you know, I st- start managing the team. You know, on deadlines, come on, give me stuff because I need to do the design. And、mm. I guess he saw some kind of management part of it that is suitable for me. And naturally, I progressed to that role.、Mm. So, what are, what are those dark arts then? Those little tricks. <laughs> uh, so okay, designer eyes always, you know. I want minimalism. I want empty space to make it more, you know, readable, right, for the catalog. But no, Thomas is like more words, bigger picture. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, I want the, I want the photo to be like, you know, the watch, the case is right in the middle of the photo. It's like really nerdy designer stuff, right? But then he's like Gertrude. We don't sell straps. We sell watches. Blow it up, you know, that kind of stuff, <laughs> which makes sense now. Like oh yeah right because you want to see the case number you want to see the movement so that kind of stuff you know sort of helped me in a way yeah hmm I just I just、okay. you know like when Ella's trying to coordinate with the photography and the and the layout it's a lot of work because there's so many moving parts、um, yeah. And so, so、uh, applause to you to to for that. 
Thank you. It is a lot of work and and yeah. I work super fast. I, I guess that's why Thomas liked me for a designer. And when I learned those tricks, <laughs> I, I like automatically, automatically, you know, do the layouts for him in, in the page. Mm -hmm. He still does the lotting, but then when he sees the page is already like, I don't know, 90% there. So he doesn't really have to, you know, care, you know, spend time, waste time on those areas, you know, focus on really putting a sale together. Yeah. I was going to ask you, was the jump into being a cataloger, was it bigger than the jump from being a cataloger into the co-head of Sayoro? Yes, totally. Because what? imagine mm. I have to learn to write essays more than 100 words. <laughs> like. Especially when, like, you know, top lots, you have to write pages and pages, right? Yeah. So that was really not my thing. But now I, I sort of enjoy it. Like, after a few years, you know, I used to write, like, one wash in three days. That's, like, crazily slow. Uh, wow. Now I can do, like, 10 a day, which mm. is, like, you know, like, Hong Kong, it has we have so many watches in one sale, so it helps. And, you know, I start to enjoy it, like, try to find my own voice in it. Mm. okay so as you're doing you've done this now and you created the sale like what did you learn in that role then as the co-head of sale you're still co-head of sale but what have you learned in that role that you didn't before where how's that progression gone what did i learn i guess i was doing it a just lot? mainly more of a management role i think because my nature is like whoever throws things at me i just do it i just get it done so during the time when I was a cataloger to a co-head of sale, I just, I was covering a lot of grounds already. Like I'm taking consignments, I'm taking care of like wholesales. Uh, so it was, to me, it felt like I wasn't really adding on to it, but more it's the mentality that I have a responsibility for the team. That's the sort of the extra thing that's on my mind. Mm -hmm. But I guess operational wise is pretty much the same. I feel like blooming responsible, like part of the team, like crazy, even though I'm like the only guy in Shanghai right now and in all of China. I'm detached from you guys, but I still feel that team spirit more than anything, you know? Like I feel like I have to go perform for my team, you know? There's also that competitiveness as well, but I do feel for my team, you know? Right? It's, it's a bit weird that I've never had that, by the way. I've never had that in any team I've worked in before. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I think the teamwork here is like, it's crazy. It's like a family. I don't know if Jacqueline, you felt the same, like, but I, mm. I really felt felt like people got my back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how I've said it to like people, you know, uh, it's such a, it's, it sounds so cliche to say it like that. Yeah. But you really do. Mm. <laughs> Jacqueline's yeah. like, hmm. Yeah, no, I feel like the <laughs> dynamic. This is this is uh what I told Yong, uh, when when he was here, because he said the same thing. He said everybody's got you back, um, and in New York, of course, when anyone needs help, help is on the way already. You know, you just have to message in the group chat, and um, you'll you'll be fine. In terms of the dynamic of it, because I'm the newest member, I was shocked by how 
well, I mean, I knew the people already from from before I I joined, but the relationship was different, and so I was expecting a longer um, time before I felt you know comfortable, fully comfortable on a working like relationship with the people, and it absolutely like I I mean it sounds again cliche, but it took me about maybe three four days to get comfortable. Um, and our age gap in New York is actually, I feel like larger than in Hong Kong, but, uh, on paper, but you don't feel it at all. Um, I can reach out to the more senior members and, and, you know, Doug is in the office every week and we go out for, for lunch. It's, it's, yeah, it's been great. Um, so I'm I'm three months into the job, and uh, it feels much longer than that. Yeah, I have to say, yeah. When I first started, though, I did feel like because everybody's really really busy, yeah, and uh, you, you nobody's like told you exactly how to do what you're supposed to do. It's kind of like if you can help, you just help. But I was like thinking, I do I did know everybody on the team before I started. But I was thinking, are they thinking like, how long is this guy going to last? You know, this, this, like, is he, is he, is he going to be a six month guy or three months guy and then realize it's not for him? And then, you know, so I, I did feel like a bit cold, like, or maybe it was just my insecurity. And then after I hit the year mark or my second sale, it just started, things started to click better. You know, obviously because of the work, you're, you're forced to interact with, certain colleagues anyway to discuss certain things about the watches or certain clients and so you, you yeah you you kind of like build that relationship but then it's just it's just getting better you know just getting absolutely better mm. but um anyway going back to you Gertrude you are now an auctioneer so in three years you've gone from cataloger to co-head of sale and auctioneer why not everybody becomes an auctioneer like, why did you mm. become an auctioneer? Um, so for, for us, uh, they just opened the question, who wants to be an auctioneer, really, to anybody, right? And I thought, because of my personality, I'm a super introvert. Like, I thought if I could go up on the stage and speak to people with that confidence, you know, it sort of unlocks something in me. Um, my intention was just to try my best. Because I'm also terrible at math, like like really bad. And I thought, okay, if I can announce numbers as fast as I don't know, Aurel or Thomas, in in a you know precise manner, I think ah, I might have achieved something. Um, so it's those things that made me want to challenge myself to be an auctioneer, to train, not to be to train. Um, mm. yeah, to challenge myself to be something different. So when you say you're not good at maths, right? Why do you have to be good at maths? Look, I, I literally failed math. Like, okay, I haven't told anybody, but I'm a bit... You have now. <laughs> ...dyslexic in numbers. Like, I didn't know okay. how to read a watch until I was, like, teens. Mm. Like, like, that bad. Like, so f numbers for me is a, is a no-go. Um, funny that I'm in auction now. 
Uh, so I learned on my job, like, because, like, you know, being an auctioneer, the increments, so hard when you're on the stage. Like, you have to be very precise. And the footing, you have to be correct. And to learn the footing by heart is it's very difficult for me. And what do you mean by footing? So, okay, let's say, like, 10,000, 11,000, right? 12,000. Yeah. The footing is, like, yeah. um, even, odd, even. And there's, like, a, a guidebook of how to land on the right foot to land on your increment in your book. Mm. It's very complicated. Like, for me, it's very complicated. So to learn that, it's it was a challenge for me. Okay. Is that the hardest part of being an auctioneer? The maths? I would say technically, yes. That's the hardest part. Okay. And when you were auctioneering, right, was there a, like a a person that you thought, oh, I want to be like that when I auction? Well, well, of course. I mean, Aurel is one of the, you know, or like the idol of, you know, he, he does it so well, so fluently. Of course, I want to be like that, working towards that. Um, also, Thomas, you know, Thomas, when, when he goes on the stage, he's a different person. Like, I, I admire that skill. Like, you know, he might not, he might, he's kind of like an introvert, right? But when he's on yes. stage, he's totally different. He's like so enthusiastic, you know, it's, it's like a show. So yeah, I, is, yeah. you know, that's what I want to learn. Like eventually I can maneuver like them. Mm. Okay. So how long was it before you decided to put a second language in your auction? <laughs> what do you mean second language though? <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, because you're like, like you, by your own admission, right? You said you're not very good with numbers. Yeah. Well, when it comes to Chinese, right? It, it, that that mess, messes me up. I've messed up a few times just on the telephone bidding, right? Because, yeah. you know, in Chinese, you've got like like a hundred, then a thousand, and then you've got the ten thousand. But we don't call it ten thousand; we call it a specific word, right? Yeah. And then when you add it into like how the Hong Kong currency works, right? You're actually into the the ten thousand number a hell of a lot of the time, yeah. And I've said like nineteen, and Aurel said, "Do you mean like you know one hundred and ninety thousand? And I've yeah, yeah, and I've just said nineteen, yeah. And I'm like, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, like. That that just that's why I said like when was it before you felt comfortable okay not using just English but then putting in the uh, the Chinese into it because that that's going to be even more difficult. So it's not when it's when I need to do it like the first time I go on stage I have to do it already because Thomas was like you have to switch you know your language is making it more exciting so I had to do it. It was Mandarin, Cantonese, and English. That's well, that's all I know. So yeah. it wasn't a choice. <laughs> I actually did like a fake auctioneering thing like at dinner the other day, right? They uh, It was a bunch of watch collectors and the kind of ritual that they had was every dinner they come to, they bring like a, a gift, right? It could be anything. Yeah. And then they auction it off. Yeah. So I they said like, oh, you know, Daniel, you're a Phillips, you, you auction it. So I was like auctioning it. And I kept forgetting the price it was at. I kept forgetting <laughs> the price it was at. So it was like 500. Yeah, and you say the next one's 550. And then you're like, think, hang on a minute. Is it 550 or is it 500? Yeah, yeah. you get carried away. Like thinking, yeah, you get carried away with it. I was like really struggling with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, why the hand helps to go, you know, to whom. Mm. Yeah. But is there a screen in front of you telling you where it's at? There must be. Um. There is a screen, but it's not telling me where I'm at. 
sort of in a way because you know there's different bids like advanced bids online bids but i roughly know like what is the bid and where i should go sometimes sometimes it can get confusing yeah okay but in general like right i i think i got like the first time i was on the rostrum i got something wrong as well but it's okay you, know, you just recover right people will tell you oh no ma'am you know i'm at five hundred thousand. it's like okay five hundred thousand. Mm. <laughs> yeah Right. Um, before we go on to the next question about, you know, feathering on your career, I was going to ask you, right, starting from a cataloger and going all the way through your journey, which is a space of three years, right? You must have developed your own taste in watches. You know, what have you liked and what have maybe you've less liked? Um, okay, from a zero. So I first liked like a Rolex, very, you know, not basic, but then the most accessible. I, I, I like, Modern. I really like yeah, modern. I really like blue. So, you know, Batman was my first watch that when I got, you know, my salary from a design job, I bought a Batman. Uh, slowly moved to uh, Panda Daytona, also modern. And then is when I start doing, I remember which sale, it was the double signed Philips Geneva auction where I saw like Universal Genève. I was like, whoa, what is this? And I started looking at vintage. So Universal, it's one of the brands that I started with in vintage, like compacts, you know, pro, uh, chronographs, um, or rotor. Because I remember I make peanuts, so I can't buy expensive watches. Um, that, and then I moved on to from chronographs to different brands. Um, I had a, a phase that I really like chronographs. I, I bought like. Octavia, which is like very niche for mm. Hong Kong or any market now. Um, and I realized I have too much chronographs, too many. And I start looking into Cartier's because because I like design. So I go for things that aesthetically has like a design element to it. And I guess Cartier really stayed with me at the moment. I think it's a face as well. Also vintage. Um, so now I'm like at the Cartier stage. Um, I mean, eventually I would love to own a vintage Patek, but, you know, working my way there. So are you one of those fangirls of Jacqueline's page then with all her vintage Cartiers? She has a very sophisticated collection. Yes. <laughs> so sophistication, Jacqueline. <laughs> Those nice watches there. Yeah, I like them. No, you're very. Well, what exciting. is it about? Like, everybody loves your collection, Jack. <laughs> uh, what is it about Universal Geneva you like, though? Can you be a bit more, yeah, specific? Um, I like the name for all. I don't know. Universal just you know the logo just works for me. Um, oh. I like that it's uh, it has like an old sort of design language, where it's more simple. Like like modern watches, I find like often you know, they try to say so much, too much. Like mm. they try to jam a lot of things on the dial. But back then they don't, right? It's very simplistic, minimalistic. You put what you need on it because it's supposed to be a tool. Mm. I like that kind of language, and of course you know the the price point as well. And not not a lot of people liked it. I guess not a lot of people were into it, and that's why I sort of I sort of took interest in it as well. And there are so much quirks that you need to learn from like forums and collectors about the watch that 
that really intrigues me. So yeah. that's why I like them. And you've just recently acquired a pole router, haven't you? Sorry, Jack, you've got a question coming, but yeah, I'll ask it after this answer. So you've recently acquired a uh, pole router. Like, how are you finding that? Um, <laughs> so before I joined Philips, I was in the universal sort of spiral, right? <laughs> I actually DM'd an IG guy to get my first pole router, the black one, uh, with date. Um, he's a really solid guy, very nice, a collector who knows Paul Rota really well. And, and so throughout the years, like he's kind of like the go-to guy for, you know, universal. Mm. And I've always wanted a tropical one. And it's so hard to find that nice tropical, right? But so, um, I think recently I just reached out to him like, Hey, how are you? Like, but wait, you know, anyone like wanting to let go of their tropical and then he's like oh i have one like are you really mm. serious because a lot of people ask me nah, nah, nah. i was like yeah like you know that i'm not gonna sell it because i still have your first one um so he was very nice uh he was like yeah i'll you know surface it for you and then i'll send it to you just wait it's like wow great yeah so i never met the guy and uh you know we managed to keep contact throughout three years and I'm very, very happy to be the next owner of his pole rotor, basically. With no date okay. this time. It with date. date. Both with date. I like dates, with actually. Both with date. But nice. it's a pain in the ass to, you know, change the date. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right, Jack, what were you going to ask? I was going to ask, like, Gertrude's thoughts on Universal Genève now being reborn again and uh, uh, hmm. your concerns. I'm not going to ask, like, are you excited about it? Because, you know, it's it depends on what watches they're going to release, right? Like, so, so what do you what do you want to see as a as an enthusiast of UG? Well, um, sort of this news is really exciting, yes, to me, but I'm also really scared <laughs> of what yeah. I do, like. It, it's so easy to add too much to something. And also the price point of... Because I, I think I was listening to a podcast somewhere and, and it's supposed to be higher price than the normal Breitling. So it really depends how they position the new watches and and sort of where it stays in the market. So that's my concern, but um, hopefully they they make the right choices. You know, they spent two years negotiating for this brand, mm. right? So I'm guessing they will put the same amount of you know R and D into putting a new product together. So hopefully mm. it turns out great. Like fingers crossed. Very excited yeah. to see it. Yeah. Mm. All right. My next question is: You said you're a fan of Cartier, mm. but which Cartier would you love to have the most? Oh, there's only one. I don't speak French, but the Tonk Aguiche, the Jump Bauer in Platinum. That's my favorite one. Okay. Mm. okay. Nice. A bit of a discreet one. It isn't one that every, everybody talks about, but it's, it's actually very admired within collector circles of Cartier, right? It's like a oh. weird Cartier. Like a very minimalistic again. Mm. Um, really so like a tank. Minimalism. Sorry? You like minimalism. Yes, I do. I do mm. uh, like it very much. I believe in it because I, I'm i not a person of, 
you know, I don't really like a lot of watches with a lot of engravings. That's not my thing. Mm -hmm. It's a flair that, you know, makes it more beautiful, but for me, it's not really necessary. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. And you said that one day you would like to get a vintage paddock. Yeah. Which one? 2508 in steel. Pay for a bracelet. Do what? Yeah. Well, if there's a bracelet, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice. It's Ooh, another okay. simple, simple watch, Calatrava type style. Um, okay. Well, I hope you get it soon. Well, okay. What, what are those? Yes, what are those you. trading for? <laughs> With hundreds. Yeah. Like, are we talking about US here? Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm talking about US here. Yes. Okay. Wow. Not okay. yet. Eventually, I won't say I won't reach that goal, but I'll work hard for it. Yeah. I saw one at the Miami show. Okay. No budget. No budget now. <laughs> <laughs> I will work harder. <laughs> the thing is, right? I see all these nice watches, and I'm sure you guys are the same. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to get them. <laughs> I actually 100% believe that I'm going to get. I always say, like, get you when I talk into the watch. I don't know if you guys do that. <laughs> but, like, a 100% feel like I'm going to get the watches I want eventually. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but, but I want to do finish off. feel like that. And then, and then there are times when, no, I, I know what you mean. But then as time goes on and your tastes change, you're also very, I mean, because we talk about this, Gertrude, all the time off camera. Um, Dan is very clear about the collection that he wants to build. And if you listen to like episodes very early on, the collection that he wants to build then is very different to the collection that he wants to build now. But at every point when you ask him, he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get that. And then it just, his taste changes. Um, but that's a part of the fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the yeah, things that so I got before, I don't some of them I don't like anymore. So, but I really, really like them back then, right? So, yeah. you know, people grow up. People, when you see more things, you know, your taste evolves. I don't think I ever grow up. Let's be honest. Um, so, we're coming to the end of your interview, Gertrude, and I want to ask, what's left for you to achieve at Phillips? You know, co-head of sale, auctioneer. What, what, what new skills are important for you? Where do you see your development going? That's like an HR question, man. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. I put you on the spot now, haven't I? It's like this yearly review of how do you want to improve yourself. Um, I guess for me, um, of course, I want to do an auctioneer better, more mm. natural to me, because it's still not, I get super nervous every auction before I go on stage. But I, when I see Aurel and Thomas, they're like, chill. Like, I want to achieve mm -hmm. that. Um. Personally, career-wise, I think knowledge for me, except for uh, especially for things that I'm not good at, like vintage Rolex, which is very mm. tough because I tend to feel that it's much easier to work on things that you like. And for things that you don't really click, it comes so much slower. So I want to work on that as well. Uh, just you know, absorb more knowledge, ask more questions. Um, and you know, to eventually be able to be like, you know, more senior colleagues like Young, you know, they're very capable. Um, 
like Tiffany, you know, to be like them, like they can handle everything. Yeah. 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 I know. What you, yeah. Okay. When you put it like that, I know what you mean. Young's a bit like a Superman. Yeah. 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 Right. Was next to we me during, both, during bidding. And for one of the lots, I, I wasn't doing anything because I had something the next lot, but his, this lot was taking so long that I wasn't going to call the client. Actually, I called and I was like, well, do you want to stay on the phone with me or do you want me to call back? And the bidding had already like lasted almost 10 minutes and it wasn't going to stop anytime soon. So he said, just call back when you like five, 10 minutes later. And then um, Yon was beside me bidding. I felt so useless sitting next to him. Because I wanted to help looking at what he's doing. But of course, I wasn't going to. Like, he didn't need me. But I just felt just this sense of embarrassment and being completely useless next to him. He was on fire. He was, <laughs> like, covering his mouth. He had, like, two phones speaking different languages and was doing all that. And I was just watching. And he was sweating. <laughs> standing not sitting oh my god and then next after the auction ended i went i went to ask him i was like hey how did you feel during that lot he was like oh yeah it was it was fine like i do this all the time like what <laughs> you? and he was walking you know he was walking when he was doing this and he need when he needed stuff he just wrote it down passed it along and and like if he got another bidder to join, then Erica or uh, dialed that guy um, on WhatsApp. And was, oh my God. <laughs> um, so actually, that was the most vivid memory of a lot from the entire auction that I experienced. It was that lot. Yeah. But did you get, did you, did you have through first auction, did you have that adrenaline rush on phone on the phone bid? I did, and I, I, I was trying so hard not to mess up. But um, <laughs> when when it just started, when everything started, you forget about all the preparation that you did in the morning of the auction. And I'm just trying to voice to the client of the current situation, but it happened so freaking fast. So. And I'm on the phone and I always ask the client, like, sir, ma'am, what's your uh, preferred way of bidding? Because that's what I always say when I'm on the other end of the phone. Like, hey, I prefer to come in early. I prefer to wait a little. So I asked them and they said, you know, most of them just they follow. Um, and I said, do you have any like specific bidding amount that you you want to land on or something but you know most people just follow so i'm trying to tell them the most um latest bid and by the time they want to bid it's already surpassed that by like three increments and i'm like oh i'm sorry it's <laughs> at this and then i just wished like it's impossible and they feel oh really i had one guy i was on the phone with and he was so determined um and then the the bid started. I'm like, oh, it's at sixty five thousand, sir. Would you like to bid? I was like, oh, it's at sixty five. Oh, okay, bye. <laughs> okay, it went too fast. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the adrenaline was was very much there. And um, when I'm watching the auction, um, like before this, of course, I just I, I watch, but then I get distracted. And when it comes to the lot that I want to buy, then I join three lots in four, right? And then afterwards, it's like it seems so long. Um, but when I was there, it passed by so quickly. It was like, oh, it's it's over, or we're almost we're on the like the last twenty lots. Yeah, it was. But that's the fun part. Like, it's really fun doing phone bits. No, it was fun watching (laughs) Yong. That that was the most fun part. (laughs) He was on fire, and it was my first time meeting him. Um, God, I don't know how he does it for that one lot. It was the it was the fifty two oh four. Right. Sitting there, uh, I felt so useless. Um, he was killing it. And then also for the G-Shock as well, of course. It was fun to watch. Yeah. he he's, I swear he's got like a restless mind. Like, he's so hyper, right? He is. Also his and he's phone. got like the big, the big bids. Yeah, yeah, his phone's constantly on. Like, it's like ridiculous amount. He's like a, an octopus, you know? With the amount of phone calls he has to deal with. Yeah. But right, yeah. That ends the interview with you, Gertrude. I don't know if it was an interview, but it was, yeah, it was good fun anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, you've got reverso questions now. So please shoot away. Okay. Um for Daniel first. Um, okay, so like obviously you've done this podcast for a long time and for many episodes. Um, what is the most important thing? that you have learned since you start doing the podcast that change your view or perspective? Hmm. That's a really good question. Yeah, I know. It's one of those really philosophical and deep questions that I actually have to think about. All right. I'm going to have to like edit this pause out. Hmm. <laughs> what have I learned? It Actually, could be something yeah. small, right? It doesn't have to be no, a big... No, no, I have learned something. No, no, I, ha- I have learned something which is actually very simple. Something that I touched upon in our recent interviews with a lot of Watch Club um, founders, actually. So at the very start of this, we were still... I was still doing Shanghai Watch Gang, which was a, a Watch Club based out of Shanghai. But then started to have more of an international profile started to inspire like well Chinese abroad and everything like that it was growing really rapidly um and like at the time our kind of impetus was to try and get as many people as possible and we thought that was the right thing to do and it would lead to better experiences right and having done the podcast which is essentially me Jacqueline and Long Long, right, interviewing one other person for an hour. And, you know, I do a prequel with you and stuff like that. So generally, it's like a lot of time investment. I've actually far more enjoyed the interactions like this. And I can I think what I've learned is that perhaps in the watch space and like with watch clubs, the watch experience, the journey, because we're all most of the time introverts. Like you just mentioned you're an introvert. You know, I'm actually an introvert and Jacqueline and Long Long are introverts. Actually, the most pleasurable and most memorable 
moments with I've shared with the guests or with Jacqueline Long Long has just been a very small group. And uh, that was something I didn't know when I first started doing this podcast. And then slowly I've started not only to believe in it, but actually I'm a convert into thinking the best interactions are actually more deep and meaningful in smaller groups. Yeah. Yeah, I find it, you know, you get to know the person more. To have a quality conversation, yeah. to really know the person, right? And also with watches, because they're so deep, the if if it's very fleeting, the conversation is just becomes too superficial for my enjoyment. Enjoyment, I'm not getting enough out of it to really enjoy that experience. Yeah. Okay, great answer. Um, for Jacqueline, um. Uh, okay. Um, if you, since I, I guess you have, you know, spoke to a lot of watchmakers and brands, uh, if you can work for a watch brand, like any watch brand or watchmaker, who would it be? And what kind of role do you want to take within that company? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> So for a long time, it was going to be Paddock. And it might still is because I'm like, I have wet dreams about their uh, vintage archive system. <laughs> I mean, we all do. Come on. Yeah. Um, I put it like that, though. But... <laughs> no, you totally would. Um, so. Okay, so if I can get that job specifically, because I'm not really interested in any of their other <laughs> jobs, that's the one job that I would get at Vintage Paddock. But if I can't, for another watchmaker, I have to say I've been, you know, since, since coming into this industry and um, traveling to Geneva a few times, had the pleasure of meeting some really talented young watchmakers that are up and coming. And um, I, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm, I'm so for, for yeah, sure. I'll, I'll say one brand, but there are so many of them. Um, we interviewed Peter Membadot, you know, two young watchmakers based out of uh, uh, Renault in, 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 in uh, near Geneva. And I would love to just do uh, marketing or, um, you know, help them with the back end because they don't have that set up. They're so, I mean, the team is so small and they don't have anyone um, else to to reply messages or introduce the brand to clients. And I would love that. I would love to do that for them. Or any young watch brand whom I'm like friendly with and we know each other on a personal level because when I was getting into independent uh, watchmaking, of course, you always hear the thing. You know, it's a special thing when you're friends with the watchmaker. But I was listening to interviews from 10 years ago from like Steve Halleck, for example. Um, and they were talking about MBNF. And MBNF back then was indeed a very small independent. And you could have 
have that relationship with now their operation is much much larger and yeah you can still have that relationship but it's very different than the relationship you could have had with them 10 years ago when they're still up and coming right but so i i took um you know note of that and when i was visiting these really smaller and up and coming watchmakers and meeting them for meals and talking not really about watches over those meals you you really know them as a as people first and then you hear about what their projects are and they show you the prototypes and the drawings and the renderings and you're like damn it, i see i don't really care about the watch anymore as funny or rude that sounds i just want to support you because you're a good per person and that's how I felt with um, a few of these small independents. And um, so I'm not going to like pick one, but but those like I'd be very, very happy to. And then I'll just throw in like I would also love to work for RM because they do great events, <laughs> um, <laughs> like doing events for them, you know. But yeah, that's a great well, question. Uh, Thank you. I'm a nice guy. So I was wondering if you could support me financially for my panic three four four eight. I think we have a pretty decent relationship as well. So just saying, if you ever want to throw a few bob down Daniel's way, we'll start for a, a good fund. cause. Yeah, can you imagine making this podcast? That that would be the the best part. If if I could like do a fund where everybody could support my three four four eight mission. Imagine if that actually happened. Right, that would be amazing if people contributed like. A bit of money <laughs> you know you know there's a there is something for that i i don't know if you were aware of like that it's called only fans <laughs> i'm totally not aware of that you can make a second account you know because you already know but you seem very familiar with it <laughs> oh, i was yeah. wondering where that money came from to buy all those watches very open Right. Okay. Now, Gertrude, back to you. We're going for the quick fire. Yep. Okay. You ready? Okay. So nothing too hard here. Quite traditional. Number one, what would you have tell yourself back at the start of your auction journey when you were a cataloger, knowing what you know now? What a piece of advice would you have given yourself? As a cataloger only, right? Like the research part. No, just... Just as a person, just as advice, you know, uh, on the journey um, you're about to embark on. I guess, um, maybe it's, it'll sound wrong coming out that way. Take things less seriously, as in like client interactions, like what people say to you. Take it less seriously. Not, not in a way that is not helpful, but in a way that sometimes those things would affect me like emotionally or you you value it too much i would say like take it less seriously mm. okay put less Good weight advice. on it yes a better way to put it put less weight yeah. or don't take things too personally yeah mm. yeah because you mm. can i, I i've <laughs> been i've been given that a piece of advice from so many colleagues <laughs> right number two I asked this in the last podcast and I'm just very intrigued, but what's your favorite flavor of crisps? Crips as in like chips? Chips. Ah, okay. Um, 
actually, I really like Sensation, the Thai one from London. But even they, they have flavors, right? Isn't it called the Thai? I don't know something like the okay. spicy. One. That's that's one of the yeah, that's one of the flavors. Okay. Right. Yeah. Next one, your favorite Chinese dessert. Ooh, oh, I don't know the English. It's the one with the what is it in Chinese. The but a pasihanzu, with the banana, and then it has like an icing, which is rock hard, where you dip it in like ice cold water to make it like. Oh, what is oh, that? Oh yeah, called? I know what you're talking about. Um, what is that called? I don't know what that is. So you fried it? This no, no, no! You've definitely had it. They do it with sweet potato. They do it with banana. They do it with apples or something. Um, but what do you actually do with the apple or the banana? So you you sort of dip it in a frying batter and then you fry it, and then you sort of cover it with like a what is it like a maple syrup or something oh, like that? It's a that. fritter. No. Oh. Yeah, it's called the fritter. No, but no. you dip it in ice to to freeze that sort of outer layer of um, icing oh. or whatever. You know, okay. and it like it, it, it lasts like it lasts when you when you pull it apart and it's yeah, chewy yeah. and then it's soft on the inside. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I just don't know okay. what the English name is. All right. It's Shanghai. Next one. Right? What's your favorite? It's oh, okay. yeah. I didn't even know. <laughs> okay, sorry. Next. Right. Next one. Favorite hobby outside of watches. Hmm. Favorite hobby. You know what? Now that I'm in watches, I've become a bit boring. Like it's all about watches and reading about watches. But favorite hobby? Hmm. Um. Just chilling and, and listening to music. That's it. What is it? What, what, what it is. What? Your favorite hobby is answering Philip's emails. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you are fast on the emails, man. Do you want to take over? <laughs> right, moving on. Um, a childhood habit. You need to send this link of. to Thomas and be like, "Hey, look, my favorite <laughs> hobby is just reading about watches and answering emails." Oh my god, <laughs> well, that's, that's Thomas actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right. Okay, next, one. <laughs> on, next one. Childhood habit that you have grown out of. Childhood habit. Um, habit is it a good habit or like a bad habit? Any both. habit. Um, these are good questions. These are hard. These are hard. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> um, I used. To be scared of like ordering my own meals <laughs> when i grew out of that i was really shy like i would go what? to the mcdonald's and then i was like standing yeah. in line just like really scared to ask for something yeah i was really introverted now i'm much better okay wow you oh you you would never expect i didn't you know you were this introverted gertrude like yeah for example if i want a toy at a toy store I would stare yeah. at them. Like, I couldn't decide which one between the two. I would stare at them until my mom, like, fed up. Like, look, it's time to go. But then she buys two of them. 
so I go home. Yeah, but that but you just do that to do that. You just <laughs> no, no, like, seriously, I was really thinking which one, what should I pick? You know, yeah. Are you a Libra? No, I'm not. Okay, because they usually have a decision paralysis. What's right, your next star one. sign? Wait, what's your uh, star sign? Cancer. Oh. Right, next one. Last two. Bucket list thing. So <clears throat> something off your bucket list. Uh, something off my bucket list that, that I have to do. Um, okay, th maybe this one is a slightly serious one, but... Answer the I, next Philip's oh, email. <laughs> no. <laughs> In 0 0.01 second, no. Um, I've always, since I was like really young like uh, during design like i always want to win something right and go up on stage to thank my mom like just to give her like credits oh, like oh, in front man. of a big crowd that's my like i really want to do that but I, obviously like, i'm not in design anymore and i have not won any awards that you know eventually have this sort of ceremony but one day uh, hopefully maybe watches i don't know i would love to have that chance to do that hmm Wow. That yeah, I'm a bit serious. <laughs> one of the best answers I've heard on the podcast. That was really, really? sweet. Yeah. Okay. Uh well you kind of like killed the last question now because I don't think you can beat that. But you've got a guitar behind you. You've got more than one guitar behind you. Yeah, so and a, clearly and a bass you love and a guitar. Music. So what's your favorite song? Ooh, I know. Ain't no mountain high enough. I love that song. It's just very okay. fun. Like it was my wedding song. Like when we marched in, like the vibe mm, okay. was good, just fun. Mm -hmm. And I liked the wow. movie Stepmom. Mm. That was the song. And yeah. How amazing would it be that if you do go on stage and say what you want to say about your mother and how much she contributed in the background? It was playing. Oh my god, I'm gonna cry. High enough. <laughs> yeah, that would be that very would be... a love letter. Yeah. Well. On that note, I hope that if that day comes, or when that day comes, I should say, I hope I'm in the crowd. Okay, right? yeah. And uh, be one of Deal. the people clapping, um, you know, uh, for your success. And uh just want to say, yeah, it's, it's great working with you. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast, but it's great, like, uh, working with you. And thanks for everything. Thanks for all the support you've given me. Yeah. Likewise, I love working with the team. Like it's so fun. It's not, you know what? It's not like working. It's, it, it's yeah, it cliche, isn't like but working. it's like and the, it's the one different. thing I like is you're constantly facing challenges all the time. So it's not like you never feel like uh, in some jobs previously you just get bored after you get good at it. <laughs> you don't get bored because there's like some <laughs> thing happening. You know, so yeah, many so weird really things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but totally. uh, yeah, it's gone on a bit for this podcast, but uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, thank you again, Gertrude, for coming on. And thank you, Jack. Uh, we'll see you guys on the next one. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.